beautiful faces. I heard a, a kind of a gush of applause when we asked if there was anyone here uh, for the first time, uh, which means uh, I probably need to do a little bit of work and make sure I catch you up. I won't be able to do a review of all of the messages we've preached leading up to this one, but definitely want to kind of give you some context for the series that we are in entitled Walk This Way. Uh, but before we get into some of that, I would love to go ahead and pray for us. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we are in desperate need of your help, uh, not because we don't know how to read or we don't understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. Uh, these are very intelligent people from all walks of life, but because we are doing more than simply exchanging words. We are handling your words. And uh, we desire that above all things that we know, that we would, Lord God, become uh, ignorant with the exception of a one singular idea, and that is that Jesus Christ is crucified. And uh, so help us, Lord God, to just funnel all things that we know and believe into that singular uh, moment. And then, Lord God, help us to just understand it in light of that. Um, draw us in, Lord God, and help us to uh, continuously increase in our appreciation for the uh, beauty and strength of your word, uh, its incredible precision with which it speaks to the human situation. Um, and allow us to experience a demonstration of your spirit. And as an outworking of that demonstration, that we would have, we would walk away with a clear, um, a clear impact from doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, uh, that in all things we'd be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord God, we need you in this way and so many others that we can't even articulate in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so again, if you're just jumping into the series, or maybe this is just your first or one or two uh, installments, we are doing a series entitled Walk This Way. It started with uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and it'll be working through uh, a ser several places from 4 through 6, because what we want to do is explore all of these little moments where the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uses this phrase, walk in a particular way. Uh, walk in unity, walk in love, walk in today. We'll be talking about walking in light. Well, what exactly does it mean? And why is this message series necessary? I believe it's necessary because uh, it group becomes very easy if you've grown up in and around church uh, to learn how to speak a particular language, to learn how to speak Christianese, to learn how to capture a very particular kind of vocabulary that's part of our culture, to learn how to take labels and rub them onto all of our issues and problems that uh, make us feel like we're really addressing the issue, but quite honestly, we don't know what we're doing practically. Um, number two, I think if you're, if you're not a believer or you're brand new to the Christian faith, it's very easy to come into a room like this and hear a lot of Christianese, a lot of jargon, a lot of ideas around what we should do, and they grow uh, increasingly frustrating because you don't know exactly what to do with those things. They sound well put together, they're well articulated, they're very pretty, and seem like they'd make some great t-shirts, bumper stickers, or other things that you might purchase for your wall or your dining room or living room, but how do you, what do you do with them? How how do you put some handlebars on them? And so we want to talk in some very practical ways about how to walk this way in light of the things that the scriptures are saying to us. And so uh, with that in mind, we are taking a look uh, at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Uh, verses 6 through 14. I want to read that for you, uh, just kind of slow and methodically, and then begin to unpack some particulars from today's message. Um, the text begins this way. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Um, for at one time you were darkness, and, but, but now you are light. You are, you are light in the Lord. 
Walk as children of light. There we go, right? It's the biggie. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that uh, they do in secret, but, in, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the big appeal, the major imperative of today's text is that we would walk as children of light. Now, this call or this appeal to walk as children of light produces somewhat of a little bit of a conundrum uh, for us as a local church or any church, I would imagine, because we often talk about as a church our vision or our mission being that we want to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. And we talk about this three-pronged growth strategy. We want to be growing upward in our relationship with the Lord. We want to be growing inward in our relationship as a family with one another. But we also want to grow outward uh, in our relationship with the world. And one must ask the question, how is it possible to grow effectively in my relationship with the world, but yet at the same time maintain my distinction from the world? How do I grow but yet be distinct? How do I do it? Because the knee-jerk reaction, the reflex, and I believe the cultural reflex, especially here in the Bible Belt, is that once I become a believer, I become a part of an exclusive, distinct group who pulls itself aside and absconds from the rest of the world, no longer doing relationship with the rest of those. But that's not the tone of the text. If you look at the text, the Apostle Paul clearly identifies the fact that these people at one point had lived amongst those, and now he's talking about how do you walk while you are still there. And that's what I want to explore. Uh, just so that you don't accuse me of being a one-trick pony, there are four ideas that I'm going to tease out today rather than three. Four. I know I felt that coming. I was just sitting there. I was like this, hmm, they probably think it's going to be three. No, I'm going to get them this week. I'm going with four. But before I get there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever... Um, in your respective spaces where you work and live in any way. Uh, maybe you're a school teacher and you got tapped on the shoulder to head up a new department. Maybe you became the department head or you became a chair. Anybody ever had that? Uh, maybe in whatever you do, maybe you're not a school teacher. No matter what you do, have you ever been appointed to a new position where you then had a, a different role amongst the peers that you came in with, people that you may have grown up with or you were hired alongside or you've been working with them for a long time, and then suddenly with that new distinction, you were in a different role? Has anybody ever experienced that? Amen. Give, give me some amens. This is an amen church. You don't have to just do head nods, right? Now, maybe you haven't experienced it as the one who got called up or got called out into this new distinction or role, but perhaps you are one of those who is still amongst the peer group. Well, one of the number one pejoratives that typically happens to us who get promoted is that when you come in and you try to move in that new distinction, is your former peer groups like, why are you acting brand new? Right? You know, you're texting and calling them, hey, guys, where you are? And they're, they're getting angry with you because, like, man, you used to come back 15 minutes late from lunch, too. Now, all of a sudden, you're trying to call me, ask me where I'm at. We on 285. Traffic is thick. <laughs> Chipotle took a minute. You've, have you experienced this? Have you experienced this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you come in there. You're not trying to be the new sheriff in town, but you got this new role, and you're doing life in light of this new role, and your new peer group is like, mm-mm, you're being obnoxious. But you're not trying to lose your new distinction. You're trying to be integrous and honorable to this new distinction that you have. But it seems to have a different impact on the peers with whom you move, right? 
Well, this is much the same kind of, this is kind of the, this is the tension that I believe that Paul's audience feels in the text. He says, you all were once darkness, but I need you to walk as children of light. And, and, and you know, when our friends say, why are you acting brand new? You know, they're not saying it from a kindness perspective, like, oh, look at you. You've got a new way about you. No, no, no. It's critical. Why are you acting like that toward us? Because there is this kinship, this relationship that is in place, and you've got to figure out how to now live within this new relationship with these same people. And that's what I'm trying. I'm trying. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, brother. But, 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 that's, but, but all of us have been gotten, we, we've all been, been in that position. As a matter of fact, every single one of us as believers, we've been, we've been, we've been, we've been made new. So yeah, we are acting brand new but not in a way that the culture would criticize us. And sometimes it's a struggle to act brand new, but we, but we need to. That's the call and that's the distinction. And so how then do we walk as children of light amongst darkness, especially when the environment in which we're doing it, we're being witnessed by those who used to be just like us or we used to be just like them. How do we do it? Four big ideas on how we might pull that off. But first, the four big ideas are going to support the following major uh, kind of macro uh, theme, and that is, as children of light, we should be challenging the status quo. As children of light, we challenge the status quo. Because that's what happened when you got tapped as the department head, right? You're like, hey, you know, all the things that I felt like should have been done differently, now that I'm in the role, I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to challenge the status quo. Even if the status quo that you are challenging is your old status quo, I'm going to, I want to do a new status quo. Which children of light challenge the status quo in the way we live. So children of light should challenge the status quo. How do we do it and still maintain our distinction? Four ways that I believe are readily evident in today's text. Uh, and here they are in brief. Number one, you need to remember these for the quiz as I, walk, as I roll them out. Uh, number one, I believe that today's passage calls us to be people who, who live a life of contrast. A life of contrast, number one. Children of light provide contrast. Number two, children of light provide clarity. When we walk in the light, we provide clarity to the surrounding environment. Number three, we provide context. Number three, we provide context. And as is will be evidenced in today's text, we also provide some element of participation in conversion. In conversion. And so contrast, clarity, context, and conversion, and hopefully you'll see them uh, readily apparent in today's passage. So with that, when we say we walk as children of light, one of the things that I want you to really see in the, just the first two verses there, it says, let no one deceive you with empty words because, these things, uh, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, this is interesting. The Apostle Paul readily recognizes that they were once members of the same community and says, do not be partners with them. If I could show you like a, a nerd for a moment, just a Greek word on the screen, you would see some very interesting similarities between the word, the Greek word for partners and the word symphony. It's like symphatikos or something like that. But, but that's not even necessarily, it's not necessary for you, but here's what you need to know. Notice that if the word is to not be partners means that it's not that you're not there in the same room. It's just that you're not living in symphony with them. Uh, children of light begin to march to the beat of a different drum. That's what it means not to be partners. That doesn't mean you're not participating. You're just not partners. 
You're just operating from a different sheet of music. And that's what's happening when we begin to challenge the status quo. And so with that, our lives, first and foremost, offer contrast. When I think about contrast, I can't help but think about my very first MRI. Anybody else have an MRI? Yeah, I've only had one, and it was kind of a fun experience. You know me, I'm a little bit like Curious George. I can't even sit still in the machine. And I was like a full-blown adult, because this was like a year ago. It's not like I, was, I wasn't like eight. You know what I mean? I'm like, what's going on in here? All these sounds, you know, sit still, Mr. Dewberry, you know. But, but anyway, one of the things that they do is they give you this contrast. They pump this stuff in me, but why did they put it in me? Why did they put this contrast in my body? So that when, when they were doing this deep analysis, they could get this clear distinction of my internal organs and anything else in me that should not be there. Contrast. They would pump in this stuff, and it just shows up differently, and it highlights all of my parts differently. And that's what the believer's life is. It's like this. We're, we're the substance. We're, we're resident within the regular everyday body, but we provide a clear distinction, a, a distinct contrast, so people can see what is clearly wrong and what is clearly right. The Bible says, thank you, brother. The Bible says over in Genesis chapter 1, I couldn't help when I thought about the, the contrasting role of light. It took me way back in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, that, that far back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, and he saw the light, and he said that it was good, and then guess what he did? He separated the light from darkness, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the first day. Now, what's interesting is that God creates light in the book of Genesis, and then Jesus comes into the world in the book of John and says that he is the light of the world, and that he, when he came in amongst his peers, that they did not receive it, and that the darkness could not comprehend or overcome him. And then Jesus here in Ephesians, turns around and hands us the baton and says, now you are light. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> but what's interesting about this, this call, this call to be, you know, as our lives offer contrasts, this clear distinction between light and dark, think about just some of the natural practical benefits of light, just natural light. Light allows us to navigate. You might not think of this. You might think that navigation is taking place because of your GPS. No, the, we, because of the North Star, we all know where up is. We all, where, we all know where ultimate north is because of a singular light. We navigate on that basis. The Bible goes on further to say that when the Lord took the great lights of both the night and the day and put them in the sky, we then could use them to measure our days and to know when there had been a, a passing of a 24-hour cycle. So not only do we have this natural capacity to navigate, but we also now have the natural ability to number our days. The only reason you know when your birthday is is because of light. You don't have some little counter in your pocket like, a, like an umpire just counting the days like this, and when you get to 365, you light candles and celebrate. No, you, you, we historically as a people have been measuring the number of cycles, and, that's how, and it's all because of light. It's, it's, it's very simple, but it provides this incredible contrast that helps us navigate our lives. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes on to say that we should number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom, to gain a heart of wisdom as a result of numbering our days. 
So the advancement of time, which is made possibly measurable through the simple presence of light, allows us to have wisdom. Man, I'm no longer, I'm, I'm 13. I'm no longer eight. There's wisdom that should come with that. I got to do things differently. Oh, I'm 18. Oh, I'm 21. I'm 25. I'm 27. Oh, I'm 35. I'm 40. I'm 50. Oh, I'm 65. Think about it. Think about every time we measure, we number our days based on the prevalence of light, we gain new wisdom out of what we ought to be doing with the days that we've numbered. Light is important. It provides a great contrast by which we navigate, by which we number our days. Light also does something else when it comes in the room. It helps us to nullify our fears. You remember when you were maybe, a, maybe even now, you're in your room asleep and you're like, oh, what's that? You turn on the light. Oh, it's just a lump of clothes. It's not a monster. You know, when you're in the bed, right? Light, I mean, light, I mean, it, it, it exposes things. And it's like, oh, it assuages my fears. Light is just so important. It helps us to, it, it, it nurtures life, right? Uh, uh, in contrast to fake light, re real light, actual light nurtures our fears. I mean, anybody, um, my first um, childhood scary movie, it wasn't the Jasons and the Freddy Kruegers. Uh, it was uh, the Poltergeist. Anybody else see the Poltergeist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't know what the Poltergeist is, don't worry about it. But, but here's what you do know. Here's what you do know. You recognize this phrase, come to the light. Come to the light, Caroline. Come to the light. You may have never seen the movie, but you know that phrase because it comes from the Poltergeist. And this idea of the come to the light is, is this little girl named Caroline was trying to navigate through a dark and evil world and pass through this portal. And she was about to get distracted and sucked up into all the evil that was happening all around her. And it was someone else on the other side who was like, come to the light, Caroline, come to the light. And that's where that was born out of. This idea that if I focus on the light, this contrasting force, that there is hope at the end of this journey, regardless of how much oozing and crazy evil there is around me. And so I believe that we as believers provide that light that people are trying to come to in a world that is saturated with distracting darkness. Amen. And so I believe that contrast, which we provide, is crucial to showing meaningful distinction in our world. There is a contrast of life that we offer that provides a meaningful distinction for people who may not even inquire or may not even ask about what's going on, but it at least gives them something to aim for, something to look at. Something about our life should provide a prospect of hope, a prospect that there is something different that is possible. Well, the Bible goes on, not only telling us that we should be children of light. Who's on the, uh, who's on the slides? Brady, is it you again? It's you. Oh, it's Jason. All right, I'm watching you, Jason. Don't get ahead of me. Somebody got ahead of me last week, and they ruined the quiz. So we are, we are on the precipice of a quiz. Do not show this. Number one, we are called to be people of contrast. Number two, we are called to be, don't do anything, Jason. We're called to be what? People who provide clarity. That's right. Survey says? Survey says? People of clarity. There we go. Yeah. People of clarity. There we go. All right, so we're to offer clarity. Now, what do I mean by this, we offer clarity? Well, if you consider what God did on the first day when he made light, it says that he looked at it and he said it was good. 
Now, there is a trend or tradition or a theme within the book of Genesis during the creative week that every time God created something and he found satisfaction in it and he would say that it's good, it means that that thing meets his criteria for both form and function. It looks like it's supposed to look and it does what it's supposed to do. And so with that, we as believers, when we walk as light, we provide clarity in a world that is inundated with confusion on how things are really supposed to work. Why are we here? Why is this happening? What is God doing? But the consistency of the believer's life is able to provide, when we're walking as children of light, clarity. Have you ever walked into a room? Have you ever walked into a room and you were looking for the light switch and it was ill-positioned? You ever notice when you go into a dark room and you go into a, or a new house or a house that's not yours or a hotel? And you go over to the wall, and you're feeling in all of the normal places where the switch is supposed to be. And you're like, who in the world puts a switch down here? <laughs> or you flip the switch, and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do because you got to go across the room and hit another switch. That's what these hotels do. I don't know what they're up to. They must have a contract with Big Pharma and, like, orthopedic surgeons get you to bump your toe. I figured it all out. I figured it all out, hotels. Right? But here's, but here's what I'm getting to. Notice that something as simple as the simplicity and consistency of a light switch, clearly positioned, doing its job. It has two functions, up, down. But when a switch is where it's supposed to be and does what it's supposed to be, up, down, lights on, lights off, it provides comfort and clarity to all that need to use it. It's not glorious. It's not glamorous. It's just a switch, two functions. And for us as believers in our lives, just be simple and consistent and be in place so that you can provide clarity for those who might reach. Thank you. Our lives provide clarity. Simple form and function. Jesus put it this way. He says, uh, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Think about this in the ancient Near Eastern context. Think about this in a, in a navigational or nautical context. You are a traveler, not in a modern world where the highways are just rode with lights and reflective, all kinds of stuff. No, you're navigating during Jesus' day, and you can't see anything, not even your hand in front of you. It's pitch black. And then finally, emerging out of the hills, you see a city, and it's illuminated. Now you know not only with great confidence where you're going, but you are confident that you need, at least need to get there because there is life there, even if you don't know anybody that currently lives there. You are a city set on a hill. And so even though people may not know us and all that is involved and what it means to be a believer, there is something collectively beautiful about how we gather if we would just not be hidden. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp or take a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our lives, the good, just the simple good that we do, it meets a certain criteria, a simple criteria, just like light. It, just, it, it, it has a certain form and function. Our good works just provide a form and function so that people see it, and then they glorify God. How does it work? I... Um, have you ever had this experience where you see something and before you fully understand what it's about, it appears to be slightly obnoxious? I go to the dentist's office recently. I'm walking in and I'm, I'm preparing to get in this chair with the hygienist and I'm just kind of taking the environment in and I'm just looking at all of these apparatuses. I'm like, this is so obnoxious. 
I mean, I mean, it looks, this stuff in there, it looks like an engine hoist or like I'm getting ready to have heart surgery. Why do you need that above me? Why can't I get my teeth clean standing up? Like, why do I have to lay back with my feet? Why do, why do we have all of these angles? What is this? And what's this little tray, this table that swoops out and these hooks and these prongs? What is all of this? And this, why do you have to have this thing, this light on your head, right? Why can't you just, I don't know. I just don't know. I just feel like it's just, it's just a lot of obnoxious pieces, right? This is, what, this is what I'm doing at the doctor's office, by the way, right? But then I sit in a chair, and, and, and I'm, 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 I'm developing a relationship with my hygienist. Curious George begins to ask a couple of questions. I'm like, what is that? Why do you do this? What is this? What is that? And one thing in particular is this little light that she has on her, on her head, on her little headband. And I'm going, you know what? That's so simple. I said, for me, it looks obnoxious, but for you, it's crucial to the job. You're able to look in my mouth and see with incredible clarity and detail all the nooks and crannies that you need to get to and still have both hands free to clean. I was like, that's genius. Ladies and gentlemen, you too, us too. We come into certain environments, and before people fully have a relationship that really understand what's up, we are obnoxious. We're obnoxious. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do Why do you always say that? Why do you always move like that? You're obnoxious. But once people get a relationship and they discover that, oh, that's what that light is about, they, not, they don't glorify you. They become intrigued by the genius of the creator. What does it mean? Uh, so I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the person now who, who decided to put lights on headbands. Who invented that? You know what I mean? I'm, on the, I'm, on the, I'm in sitting in the car in the parking lot after I pay my deductible. Like, who made that? I'm intrigued by that. But I believe that our good works do the same thing in the lives of others. They see our good works and they glorify our Father who is in heaven because they're intrigued by the genius of what he's doing in the lives of people. But notice that in this examples that it's relational proximity that gives the opportunity to give that understanding. That's because believers are not only responsible for providing context, or excuse me, providing contrast and clarity, but also some context we're going to discover in a minute. So as I move on from this point, um, our good is ne a necessary reflection of what brings him glory. Our good is a necessary reflection of what brings him glory. Don't feel like you need to be involved in some grandiose expression of gospel. You do need to open your mouth and share the truth. We do need to, but we do, need to do that. Uh, I, we do need to live authentically. We do need to do that. But, but, but don't feel obligated to, again, live out some grandiose expression of gospel truth in order to have great impact on those who are around you. And then number three, number three, let's look at it before we put it up on the screen. Jason, I've already kind of leaked the answer to the test. What was number three? We, we had to live with what? We ought to live with context. What, is I, what do I mean that, that the believer's life offers not only clarity and, and uh, a contrast, but also context? Well, take a look here at uh, verse 10. It says, uh, and try to discern. So there's something, there's a follow-on from verses 8 and 9. When we walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I mean, everybody is on this adventure of trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's the number one question every pastor gets answered, get asked. It's just like, oh, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for this situation, right? And these are real questions. I don't mean to make fun of it. It's a real question, but it's the most frequently asked question of all time. Like, what's God's will for this situation? The believer's life provides clarity, and it should provide context to what kind of discovery, though? What kind of context? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. 
Um, I can't read it from the paper. It's the ESV. It's just one of these modern versions. I'm a King James kid. So it says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he moves it whichever way he wants to, like the rivers of water. And all the ways of man are right in his own sight, but God weighs the motive. That's what my Bible says, right? I don't know what this stuff is, right? But anyway, but, but what's interesting, what's interesting, what's interesting about this is as follows, is that when our lives provide a context in which people see these unique things that might often appear to be a conundrum. Like when you look at Proverbs uh, 21 verses 1 and 2, you are looking at a simultaneous view of the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. You, you see that? He says that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he will. Well, what is the Lord turning? Is he turning the river or is he turning the heart? Hmm. Providentially, maybe he's doing both. But it's interesting. And then the Bible depicts it as a king. So a person who is administering at a high level with, you know, all kinds of global authority. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it whichever way he wants. Well, guess what? Then the Bible goes on and says, and every way of man, not just kings, your way, my way, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord is in there evaluating and weighing motives. This is just a beautiful thing that we see. It's not just a proverb on a page. People of light are a living crucible that gives context to how it all works. You have a will. I have a will. God has a will. And some kind of way these wills are at work within here, and God is navigating it. You see, we want the will of God, and most people do, want the will of God to look like a set of railroad tracks. Choo-choo. We're just kind of going right there, and you can look out the window, enjoy the ride, and see exactly where it's going. But it's more like a meandering river. And you might not feel like you know where you're going, but guess what? The one who carved the river does. And so in the believer's life, there is this beautiful adventure of how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coalesce to create this finished product where neither the sovereignty of God is insulted nor is the free will of man uh, abbreviated. Well, it's got to be contextualized in some way because we can't be co-sovereigns, right? But, but here's the deal. Some kind of way, God is doing what he wants to do, and I think I'm doing what I want to do too. But God ultimately wins. And it is the believer's life living as light that gives the world opportunity to see how folks who are trying to love God are working through decisions that have this very nuanced kind of navigation that may not make sense in the moment, but man, it makes so much sense in the end. We provide context. The, 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 the unbeliever is not reading Proverbs. They're reading you. They're reading me. They're, they're, they're seeing an active laboratory where this unique relationship with God in a very nuanced way is working out. It is in our lives that they not only see the unique coalescence of a sovereign God working through the free will of a man, but it is also in the experiment of our life that they see that sometimes hitting the bullseye isn't just a function of trying to throw harder and try harder. They see the unique complexities of the difference between intent and impact through the laboratory of our life and how God is working with us. They see the context that just because it's natural and normal doesn't mean that it's optimal. All of these things are being fleshed out in our lives and the way we move with God. And this is the context. Our lives are living mobile laboratories of how God's will works its way out within human creatures. Now, this all presupposes that we're not living as a club and we're living amongst them. Remember, we're, we're, we're still trying to answer one question. How do I grow in my relationship with the world but yet maintain my distinction? 
We're still working from that single, simple, simple premise. I know I'm all over the place, but, but we're, we're rowing in one singular direction with this. And so finally, we get to the next one. Well, let me just say this little thing right here I, I wrote down. You might like it. Um, our consistency should serve as a laboratory where the efficacy of God's will uh, is constantly proven. You like that? I love that. Uh, I like that. I mean, I don't, you don't have to like it, but just thought, thought you would appreciate that. And I just I wanted to close that point with that. Um, but anyway, verses 12 through 14. Let's wrap this bad boy up. Verses 12 through 14, fourth and final point. It says, um, but, any, but when anything is exposed... Uh, by the light. It becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible uh, is light. Therefore, um, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ shine on you. Our lives um, not only bring contrast and clarity, and, but they also facilitate conversion. How exactly do they do that? Our lives facilitate conversion because it helps those who are asleep to awaken to the light of Christ. Um, again, consider, if you will, what happens when someone bursts into your room and you are asleep and they throw on the lights. It is initially shocking and obnoxious and annoying. But eventually you recognize that you do need to get up and that prolonged darkness is not productive. And that you grow to not only be glad that the light is on, but to need it, to find your socks, to find your keys, your phone, and to figure out whether or not your outfit actually matches. <laughs> right? Right. But initially, you couldn't stand the fact that someone would throw on the lights. And this is what the light of Christ does in the life of the believer. We, we facilitate conversion by showing something of the Christ. Those who are dead see something that they can navigate toward and find life. Those that are far find something that they can move toward and become near. I understand that uh, as we are growing in our relationship with the Lord, that there are going to be times when, yes, there are going to be relationships that we have to sever because those relationships seem to be counterintuitive to our growth and development. But I think we also need to recognize that not to be too quick to pull out the scalpel because this passage assumes that we are living life amongst those who are in darkness and that something about our light is essential to their conversion. I want you to think about for a moment that every single one of us has been assigned a unique missional social circle. Now, when we think about missionality, we all like to leap, which you should, and I love that you do, over to Acts chapter 1, right? The, the disciples, you have power, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me. When you say unto you doing business. <laughs> you will be witnesses unto me, right? Into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. That's official, man. Well, do you know that in your respective social circle, there is a level of engagement and grip that you have that I can never have? There, because of your unique, because of your unique cultural disposition, because of your unique cultural situation, your unique ethnic situation, your, your unique upbringing, your, all of the unique intricacies that make you who you are, you have a Jerusalem. You, there's this bullseye social community that will listen to you before they will ever listen to anybody else. You've got this cultural context, just like the disciples had. They had a group of people that could heartily hear them because it's like, oh, that's some boys that used to hang out with Jesus. Let's go see what they're talking about. 
Their lives look new. But then they begin to move into other spaces where they had no cultural connectivity, but they still had a missional assignment. You and I need to assign to ourselves the same seriousness that the disciples assigned to the whole, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world map. Assign that to your, your concentric circles of social influence. Where you stand right now and the people with whom you have the deepest relational capital, that's the Jerusalem. Get in there and be light, be contrast, be clarity, be context, be a facilitator of conversion in that space. Switch on that light. The simple just be a laboratory where the will of God is regularly being worked out. It is, it is in that space. You know, and, and again, by all means, be missional and, and, and go beyond your comfort zones. But by all means, be faithful in the space where you are in your current missional social circle. Think and pray deeply about the places where you have the highest level of social connectivity. Why? Because I believe that while you may not have, you, 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 I believe this, you and I have chosen our respective addresses, but we were chosen at those addresses. You hear me? You, you, you chose to live in wherever you live, but God chose you. So the chosenness of your life shows up in your choice. You chose to live in that neighborhood, and God chose you. So be missional in that space. And what does it mean to be missional in that space? I believe that we should be taking our relational capital and converting it into something of an eternal investment. Take your current relational capital and convert it into an eternal investment. There's nothing about where you are, how you look, and your age, your hair type, your sense of humor. Nothing of that is arbitrary because you've been chosen. Just switch on the light and allow it to become a functional entity for gospel enterprise where you are. This is how I believe we live and grow amongst the world, but yet maintain our distinction while in it. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you for all that you would share with us uh, in your word. I, um, I'm always reminded when I open your word, it's, um, it's almost like uh, that one box under the tree that my parents didn't tell me about. And as I unpack it, it's all the stuff that I, that I wanted. All this, and then I keep pulling out other things I didn't even know that I needed, but look, man, I love it. I thank you, Lord God, for just that never-ending gift of your word to draw things out that we need in our lives that we didn't even know we needed. Would you continue to allow the wellspring of life to speak to us and draw us to a place of greater relationship with those that are around us? Lord God, for those that may even be watching at home or wherever they are, May we switch on the light and switch off this mindset or this thinking that I need to go to a particular location to start doing your will. Oh, Lord, help us to switch on the light right where we are and be who you called us to be. We may have chose our careers, but you chose us. We may have chosen our, Lord God, our locales, but you chose us. We may have chosen the homeschool group that we fellowship with, but you chose us. We may have chosen, Lord God, our spouses, but you chose us. We may have chosen our colleges, but you chose us. We may have chosen our careers, but you chose us. And Lord God, let us operate out of the strength of your providential choice because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whichever he will, whichever way you will, like rivers of water. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship him.